I hope you're ready for the word, and I am so glad to be back. My wife and I had an amazing time on vacation. We got away for about uh, six days just to um, be together. Um, I, I learned, I hope you uh, were blessed by my pastors who were here last week. Pastor Scott and Vanessa Blesso, was that not wisdom that they were sharing? We were watching online, but I learned it best from him. I stole that line from him. He said, he stole it from Jesus, and that is, uh, we look at the kids and we said, we love you, that's why we're leaving you. <laughs> Because we're going to make sure that this is solid so that they always have a foundation that's solid um, in the house. And that's what we're talking about a little bit in this series called We're Kind of Dysfunctional. It's a series that is focusing on the family. It can, it can be applied uh, uh, to your spouse if, you want, if you're not married and you want to be married or you want to be married again, then there's plenty to write down and to work on yourself now to prepare yourself to be the best self when you do get married. Um, you can apply it in parenting. But listen, you can also apply this in a lot of relationships, period. A lot that we are supposed to learn in the home gets applied everywhere we go. And our God is a relational God. He uses terms like father. He uses, um, um, uh, he calls us sons and daughters. These are all relational family terms that we take from. It becomes our core center. It becomes our strength on the inside so that when we go out into the world, we can give the world the healthiest us and the greatest lift possible, not because of our strength, but because of his strength. That's why we love the, the term he lifts, because he makes me a better me as I worship him and I follow him and choose him. And so that's what we're talking about in this series. We're kind of dysfunctional. And um, this is the third week, and I am so ready to be back in this pulpit and share with you. Do you know, if you've ever made the trip to Boston, they have a saying on a really hot day that it smells like molasses. Now, many people who have not been to Boston or are not from Boston have, have not heard of this incredibly tragic historical event that happened in Boston. But back in uh, the earlier 1900s, um, World War I was happening, and America was trying not to be engaged, but they were selling munitions um, uh, um, to other countries. And so uh, there was a high molasses import because they would use the molasses to uh, ferment into ethanol. And so they were, they were making weapons with that. And, and um, in World War I, Boston uh, um, tried to really quickly build a, one of the largest tanks in their area for molasses syrup. They're not just trying to make sugar cookies. Come on. They're, they're actually using it for munitions. And so this tank that is on the screen, that's about to appear on the screen, this is what they built. But um, there was all kinds of crazy permitting at the time. There was literally 30 people working around the clock to build this as fast as they possibly could so that they could make the most profit, the most um, uh, bang for their buck. Hey, pun intended. Come on, they're making munitions. But uh, Okay, uh, anyway. Um, I'll try not to use that in the second experience. I'm getting that vibe, all right? <laughs> okay. So anyway, um, and they were super late on their construction deadlines, so they started cutting plenty of corners, 
and, and, and they got it erected as fast as possible. When they, they, they needed the munitions to go out and everything like that. So when they came for permitting, the, the, this tank that is designed to hold 2 million gallons of molasses syrup, they tested it with 6 inches of water. And they said, yep, it passes the test. You can fill it up. And so the city started um, uh, having plenty of molasses imported. Uh, there were evident leaks. The neighbors started pointing out there's leaks in that. And so um, what did they do? They decided just to paint the tank like a reddish brown so that if it leaked, it would hide the signs of its uh, shoddy construction. And then, so, so neighbors just started bringing buckets out there, and they would scrape off the excess from the leaks so that they could make their sugar cookies, their little gingerbread cookies. Come on, we got, we got a, a, a molasses flow if they're not going to deal with it. Um, so uh, then when the war ended, they feared prohibition was coming in 19, uh, 1920. So they decided in 1919, on January 15th, they said, Fill the thing to the brim because we don't know how long we're going to be able to import molasses and we want to turn this into a rum runner. And so they said, fill this thing up all the way to the top. They filled this thing up and on January, 26 million pounds of molasses are in this tank. And on January 15, 1919, locals report hearing um, a roar, a thunder, and it was sounded like, Tic-tac, uh, gunshots were going off everywhere. Literally, the bolts of the metal holding this thing together started firing out of this thing so rapidly they thought it was gunshots, and it released a 25-foot-high wave of molasses. Can you imagine 25 feet? I mean, this is a tsunami of syrup. <laughs> this sounds bizarre. It actually sounds a little bit humorous today, but when you got a 160-foot wide wave, 25-foot high, moving at 35 miles per hour, we always say slow as molasses. Well, when, you, when something has to break on 26 million pounds of molasses, it's moving at 35 miles per hour into the city. It caused something like this. 20 horses died. 150 people were injured, 21 people dead. The Boston Post reported this in their news headline, Molasses waist deep covered the street. Here and there struggled a form. Whether it was an animal or a human being, it was impossible to tell. Only an upheaval upheaval, a thrashing about in the sticky mass showing where any life was. Horses died like so many flies on sticky flypaper. The more they struggled, the deeper in the mess they were ensnared. Human beings, men and women, women suffered likewise. Literally, the syrup flowed into people's buildings, filled up their, um, what do you call that, uh, uh, lower level um, basements. I mean, some people were swept off the uh, harbor by a wave of molasses that pushed them into the local um, uh, harbor. And so th it's, this huge disaster was the result of poor, untested integrity of construction. And guys, so too, when we're constructing our lives, 
carelessness with integrity creates carnage. In fact, you should write that down. When we're constructing our lives, carelessness with integrity creates carnage. Divorce, broken homes, loss of trust, loss of jobs, loss of money, questioning all leadership. Why does this happen? Because when we are constructing our lives, when we are careless with our integrity, it creates carnage. And so it is integrity that either builds or ruins our legacy. In Boston's case, it was a tragic uh, legacy. But I'm believing that through the power of God, with uh, careful integrity, we are going to build legacies that honor God today. Can I get an amen? When I talk about integrity, I'm going to talk about integrity with the whole family. Um, The word integrity says this. um, It's defined as the quality of being honest. It's faithfulness to high morals. If you look up synonyms for integrity, you're going to find words like this. Character, goodness, honesty, morality. Virtue. If you were to look up what is uh, when someone lacks integrity or when, when integrity is missing, you'll find words like badness, evil, immorality, wickedness, sin. And, you know, I, I, I think that the first list of character, goodness, honesty, morality, and virtue, the first list builds home homes. The second list destroys homes. And isn't it uh, um, interesting, not interesting, it's actually kind of um, heart-wrenching to me to find that in our day and age, integrity is becoming harder and harder to find. Do we not mistrust a lot of people's motives? Do we not uh, have a pessimism towards what's really happening when no one's looking What's happening behind your closed doors? What's happening um, in, in co-workers' closed doors? What do we think the kids are not seeing that the kids are seeing? What do we think uh, that God's not seeing that God is seeing? Now, I could preach a whole series on t- integrity. I could preach about integrity in the home, integrity out of the home, integrity at work, integrity on the web, integrity financially, um, morally, spiritually. I could get up all of it in each one of our businesses, really, when it comes to integrity. But for the scope of this message, while we're talking about a family series, I'm going to limit it to integrity that will impact the home this morning. And I, I want to make this disclaimer that really I believe that the Holy Spirit might step on a lot of people's toes. And I want to be very clear that our heart, I believe God's heart is always for conviction, never for condemnation. So at any point today, if you feel guilty about something, I want to just say this, that God's intention is not for you to stay guilty. That would be condemnation. That's the devil. He wants to go, see, you're a screw up. You failed at that long time ago. You'll never get your integrity back. You are a waste of space. You are a wasted life. No, that is the voice of the enemy, and I rebuke it today. But there is conviction, and God, God's Holy Spirit will come upon our lives in certain areas and go, we need to work on that. And if you feel that way today, I want to tell you at any point, you can always say this. Forgive me, Lord, for I have sinned. 
and choose to make a change. In other words, conviction never leaves you feeling like a loser. It always gives you a way out. And so this, this morning, I pray as you listen to this message that if you feel convicted at any time, just simply have a moment of repentance. And um, I know that I'm challenged with it uh, as well. And so um, we're kind of dysfunctional week three. If you like titles, I've, I've simply entitled this one, Integrity, Legacy, and Family. Would you pray with me? God, restore to us the goodness of your salvation. Father, I pray that our hearts would be open, that you would be able to move freely in our lives. We open it up to you. After all, we are the temple of your Holy Spirit. So have your way. In Jesus' name, I pray. And everyone who believes that said, amen. When I open the Bible, um, one of the uh, most uh, careless moments of integrity, it, it, it's um, that, that it really is not just throughout the Bible, but through all of history. Um, when careless integrity creates carnage, we can find that in the book of uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, King David um, is going to have a turning point in his leadership, a turning point in his relationship, a turning point in his worship. Um, up to this point in the story, if you don't know King David, David was a shepherd boy. He was the youngest of many brothers. He uh, learned how to worship God into, in the fields, in the pastures. God used him to not just be a worshiper, but turned him into a warrior. When he was protecting sheep, um, he was able to kill the lions that attacked, the, the bears that attacked. He was able to protect his sheep from all kinds of things by the power of God. It so moved him that one day when the Israelite army, which included his older brothers, was um, uh, fighting the Philistine armies, he found them in a standoff. And this giant named Goliath, where many, familiar, uh, many of us are familiar with, started ridiculing them. And he said, the power of God has come on me before. I'm not letting him talk about our God like this. I'll kill the, the giant. And he goes out there and he kills the giant. So he's a worshiping warrior. And he's anointed behind the scenes to be the next king. He's king in waiting. He's king um, in anointing already, but not king in position yet. And so many of us can relate to, I feel like I'm supposed to do this, but I am just have not been called that yet, but I feel called to it, and I feel uh, destined to it. Anyway, that's another message for another time. But this is David, and he becomes king of Judah, and then Israel says, we messed up, become king of Israel too, and he takes over the whole kingdom. And when he takes over the whole kingdom, we find him fi uh, starting to move into an area that's new to him, it's comfort. And in his area of comfort, it says this in 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israel army to fight the Ammonites. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now, late one afternoon, after his midday rest, the brother took a nap. David got up out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. And as he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was. And he was told that she is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then David sent messengers to go get her. And when she came to the palace... 
he slept with her. Now, David, now polygamy was uh, common at this time, but at this point in the story, he has multiple wives, he has concubines, he is not short in that department, and yet he has a moment of comfort and laying down of his morals, and the warrior-worshipping king loses his integrity. He says, who's that? Temptation has a way of taking away our integrity when we give into it. And I wrote this down later in my notes, so I'm way off of it, that it takes years to build a family, but it takes seconds to lose it. And you're going to find that in seconds, David lost not only his integrity, but David would ultimately lose his whole family, and it would go from all uphill to plenty of downhill from this moment. This moment of poor judgment caused so much carnage. It caused adultery with Bathsheba. It caused um, an assassination of his uh, of her husband Uriah, uh, a conspiracy uh, to get him killed. It, it led to an infant death because she conceived, and, and God would not allow that child to live because of, of the sin. And then later, it would also play an effect in sibling rivalries because we know who your mama is. Your mama's Bathsheba. And you might be my stepbrother, but I don't like anybody from your line of family. We know who your mama is. We know what your daddy did. Right, Our daddy did, right? She becomes that kind of person. And for David, it was lust that took out his integrity. And that might be true for you too. But it also might be arrogance, ambition, pride, conceit, vanity, hatred, or prejudice. That you or I might struggle to lose our integrity in a similar kind of way. In our world, integrity seems to be rare. Cheating on marriages, stealing time at work. Stealing services, cheating on taxes, being one person here and another person there. Lies and half-truths anytime it serves me well. Come on, it seems as if we have no convictions rooted in Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ defines our faith. Christianity, his name's in it. And if we're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, we too have to have convictions where we hold tight to the things that he held tight to. And so we have to maintain our integrity through Jesus Christ. And so write this down. You cannot establish a Christian legacy for your family without integrity. You cannot establish a Christian legacy for your family without integrity. David's family suffered, Eli's family suffered, even Naaman in the book of Esther lost his family because of ambitious pride, got his whole family killed because his integrity was all out of whack. So here's what I want to do, I want to equip us with five ways to defeat dysfunction in this area. Five ways to defeat dysfunction in this area. Number one, write this down, uh, the first way to defeat dysfunction is to determine what you value and why you value it. Life is fast, y'all. Life says you got to report in at work at this time. You can clock in at this time. You'll make this much money. Uh, you got to be at this event. You got to be at that event. Your family or, or social life says you got to do this. Social media says you got to post. When, have you stopped lately to go, what do I value and why do I value it? Let me help you out. As Christians, you should have God at the top. 
If you're married, you should have your spouse number two. If you have kids, you should have your kids number three. And work is important too or else you're going to get fired. <laughs> that should probably be number four. In other words, it's God, family, and work. Okay, but oftentimes when we don't write that, if you write that down and you make it plain and clear, you can see this is what I value, answer why you value it, and keep that into focus. You know, why didn't David go to war is my question. God had established him. God had carried him in everything. And by this time, he's not an old man who can't uh, wield a sword anymore. He's in his 30s. He's perfectly capable. He's in the climax of his uh, political career. And God has always advanced the kingdom through his warfare. So why is the brother staying home and sending other people to fight his battle? We don't know why exactly, but one thing we do know is that he must have had a loss of vision. A moment of just chilling back and going, what's next? <laughs> kind of done everything. I, I, I don't know what's the next fight to uh, uh, war to win. Guys, can I encourage you? Always have a war to win. I'm going to win at home so that I have a legacy of a family that is unified and knows Jesus Christ. Come on. I'm going to win and fight the battle for Jesus Christ. I'm going to fight for other people's salvation. Come on. When I keep that in my perspective, then I don't just lean back and go, who's that? Or... What's that? Or they look like they're having fun over there. Why haven't I tried any of that? We have to be careful that we would define what is, what is valuable to us and why. David lost sight of that. And without integrity, our, our character becomes a product to be sold to the highest bidder. We play differently to suit whoever we admire. Oh, if I could impress this person, I could jockey for a position, or I could have a pay raise or power, or I could feel like the man, or I could feel loved again. And we will sell our integrity to the highest bidder unless we know what we value. And I'm not selling it. I'm not selling it. In a moment of temptation, you go, ain't worth it. Ain't worth it. Come on. Um, Jesus, what I love about Jesus was he only had one face. He was not two-faced. He didn't play two different ways. In fact, when Jesus was tempted in the desert, 40 days and 40 nights, he gets tempted three times. And Jesus responds in essence all three times. Matthew 4.10, get out of here, Satan. You must worship the Lord your God and serve. Say these next two words, only him. In other words, I know what I value. I know why it's my highest value. Do you have yours defined? Because in temptation, which every single person in this room will be tempted, Satan will try to attack every single one of us. It's just in a moment of temptation, will you have predefined, here's my number one. And so, ain't happening. No, thank you. Not distracted. Not getting off course. I got a battle to fight. I'm going to war. There's too many lost souls out there. My family matters too much. Come on. Um, Jesus knew what was important and why, and so that kept him one-faced. And I, I, I don't want to be the type of Christian who's two-faced or, or living one way on Sunday and living a different way on every other day. And if you're doing that because you're new to Christianity, let's go. Come on, keep on coming. Don't let uh, condemnation hold you back. But if you're doing that because you've become a professional at being a Christian on Sunday, 
and not so much on Monday. Come on, it's time to get our integrity back spiritually. What do you value and why you value it? Number two, the way to defeat dysfunction. Number two, develop a habit of conviction. I feel like conviction's become a dirty word in Christianity lately. <laughs> we like to talk about all the freedoms we have in, in, in our Christianity. And you know what? For a long time, we, we, we did not talk enough ab about the freedoms. And so it is a relevant term. But in our, um, um, our search for, I'm free to do whatever I want, we are forgetting that there should be a habit of convictions, something that separates me from the world. Come on. I am in the world, but I am a part of the world. I am set apart. Anointed means I am set apart. And in the age of spiritual freedom, I fear many have just thrown away convictions. Drinking is not sin, but drunkenness is. And do we still have a conviction that I, I, I've gone too far and I, I, I'm, going to be, I'm going to make sure that I do not sin in this area again? Marital sex is not sin, but lust and premarital sex are. And I feel like in our world today just tells you, do whatever you want, God will forgive you. Come on. Frustration is not sin, but name-calling and cursing people are sins. The Bible is clear about these things. Parenting is surely not sin, but anger and verbal abuse or physical abuse are sins. And so we got to be careful that as we live in this world that we don't give up our convictions, a habit of convictions. I love the way Brad Lumenek uh, wrote in his book, uh, a habit of convictions means doing what is right instead of doing what is easy. Doing what is right instead of doing what is easy. 2 Corinthians 3 says this. I love what Paul says to the Christians and Corinth, and he says this, the only letter of recommend, recommendation we need is you yourselves. Your life is a letter of recommendation for me and my ministry. My question is, if people read your life, would God hire you? Because our life is a letter of recommendation, right? And, and he says this, that Clearly, you are a letter from Christ showing the result of our ministry. In other words, I believe this. The world needs to see more integrity. I'm so tired of seeing leaders and pastors and believers give up their integrity. But here's the thing. It's not just at the top. It's all the way down. And we need to maintain our integrity because it's about our witness. It's about our witness of a very important, almighty, merciful, forgiving God who deserves my greatest obedience. He deserves my life. He deserves the message being preached as a letter of recommendation with the way I live. And if I don't maintain a habit of convictions, then I'm not preaching much of a message that the world isn't preaching already. And so we got to be standing apart and setting an example of what God's saying. It's quiet up in this church. Am I, am I stepping on too many toes or can I get an amen this morning? Your spouse deserves 100% integrity. Your kids will flourish when you maintain 100% integrity. 
Your witness only lives by integrity. I, I, I discovered a term that uh, made me sick to my stomach this week. You've probably already heard of it. This term's common now. That's my work wife or that's my work husband. And when I heard that, I said, wait, say what? Tell me again. What, what, what did you mean by that? Said, well, when my wife's not here at work, this is my work wife because she keeps me looking good. She keeps me together. And um, I, there's typically a relationship happening there that probably hasn't crossed boundaries. But we really just flirting and we're calling it work wife. I'm really d disgusted by that term. Because actually you'll spend more time with the people you work with than the people you have married or live with. And so you are crossing your convictions or you've turned your convictions off towards a certain person when we say, she's my work wife, he's my work husband. It's a way of trying to slip in there and kind of go, what's her name? See, David made the biggest mistake not when he saw a beautiful woman. That's called temptation. That's not sin. What he should have did is said, hey, guys, let's play some cards. <laughs> Whether I tell you or not, I need to change the subject. I need, to, I need to move on. I need to not act upon it. Where he went wrong is when he said, what's her name? Because now I'm entertaining the temptation. And when we say work wife, work husband, we are entertaining something that might be. And so you don't go there, and I would encourage my friends, let's not go there. Write this down. Oh, I, I said this already, but you should still write it down. Your family takes years to build and seconds to leave. Number three, it looks like I got to go faster, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm passionate about this message. Number three, um, um, uh, five ways to defeat dysfunction. Number three, be honest. Be honest. My wife and I were making a purchase recently. Um, it was a more steep purchase. And um, the person, uh, more steep than the common purchase. And the person who was working with us said, um, uh, if, if you would like to, we can funnel this through a relationship or a family member or a friend that you have in Delaware so that you don't have to pay the taxes. And I thought, there's a few zeros behind that tax bill. Sounds like good. Uh, no. You know how hard it is to maintain your financial integrity when you go, bill me for that. And what I could not leave alone was the Holy Spirit was saying, um, I, I see Gavin there. I, I know actually you don't live in Delaware, but let's say you do. Can you imagine this conversation? Hey, Gavin, could you just receive this letter for me and sign off on it? so that I don't have to pay these few hundred bucks. All I could hear was Gavin's mind's going, so you'd sell your purity and your integrity for a few hundred bucks. That's how much it's worth to you. Bill me. Add the tax on that. Because I want to live a life of integrity even when no one's looking. Y'all weren't going to see it. I wasn't going to like pull out the sheet. See, pay taxes right here. If you're in Delaware, praise God to you. Come on, don't pay taxes. But you know what? Listen, pay unto Caesars what's Caesars. And I'm not in Delaware. So uh, we said, put it on the bill. Ben Franklin said this, never do anything in private that would make you blush if it were brought out into public. I don't need Gavin talking to his friends. My pastor forwarded something to my address so he didn't have to pay 200 bucks. 
that ain't worth it, y'all. Just like going, Bathsheba, she got all the same stuff my other wives have. It ain't worth it, y'all. Come on. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2 says this. Since God in his mercy has given us this new way, we never give up. We reject all shameful deeds and underhanded methods. We don't try to trick anyone or distort the word of God. We tell the truth before God and all who are honest know this. Come on, someone say amen. There's so many lost people in this world, and the last thing we need is for our witness to preach something similar to what Jesus said to the Pharisees. You can do what they say, but don't live like they do. In other words, they're two-faced. They're hypocrites. And I, too, don't want to sell my integrity, which might leave someone lost and going to hell. And Jesus got really real with that when Jesus said, if you cause a little person a kid to stumble it would be better for a noose to be tied around your neck and tied to a millstone and thrown into the sea than for the fate of those who cause people to stumble because i wanted to skirt taxes i know it's tempting i was tempted too i'm not above temptation and neither are you it's knocked on your door in one way or another we just need to have integrity when it comes knocking number four fourth way to defeat um, dysfunction in our families is uh, declare Psalm 101 regularly. I don't care if you start declaring it daily, weekly, or monthly. And I really missed an opportunity. Had I not been on vacation, I thought about this as I pulled in. We should have printed this and given this out to each one of you as you left today. So I hope that you'll make it your homework assignment to pull up Psalm 101. Print it out. Put it on your fridge or next to your speedometer or put it as a really stinking long um, um, uh, notification that goes off either daily or, or weekly. Weekly, but at the least monthly. Psalm 101 is so powerful. There's a I will statements in it. And this is what King David said before he fell with Bathsheba. He ended up losing sight of this. But as he took over the kingship, he declared this. I will sing of your love and justice, Lord. I will praise you with songs. I will be careful to live a blameless life. When will you come to help me? I will lead a life of integrity in my own home. I will refuse to look at anything vile or and vulgar. I hate all who deal crookedly. I will have nothing to do with them. I will reje reject perverse ideas and stay away from every evil. I will not tolerate people who slander their neighbors. I will not endure conceit and pride. I will search for faithful people to be my companions. Only those who are above reproach will be allowed to serve me. I will not allow deceivers to serve in my house, and liars will not stay in my presence. My daily task will be to ferret out the wicked and free the city of the Lord from their grip. Come on, if that's not a life's declaration that you could make yours, how do you not become a better spouse if you read that every single day before you leave the house? How do you not become a better parent? How do you not become the best employee anybody could ever hope to hire? How do you not lead your business with integrity if you choose these are principles? I'm not going to violate. I'm not going to violate these. I'm going to build my house on God's house. And on that solid rock, 
I believe that he is going to do something that ultimately builds his church. Come on. David lost sight of this. Learn from David's mistakes and don't make the same mistake. Come on. Remember it regularly. And as I finish, some of you might think, what if I've gone too far? Or what if it's too late, Pastor Drew? Don't worry. I got a fifth point. But what's interesting about that Boston molasses tragedy is that the neighbors said, you got cracks in that thing. The integrity doesn't look right. You got any friends or family members who will be real with you? It's called accountability. Starting to sound like an old school word, but I believe no person should be without accountability. I, as a pastor, have accountability. It might look like, oh, I'm in charge here. No, I have people that I have submitted authority to because I believe every pastor needs a pastor. And I think every person needs a friend who can go, you got leaks in your tank. You leaking syrup all over the place. <laughs> like, what did you just say with that woman? You called her a work wife? There's a leak in your tank. Let, let's, let's do some repair before something tragic happens. Right? Like, we need somebody who will be real with us. I've told three men in my life, there's actually a few more, that no matter what you say, I will receive it, even if I really want to feel like punching you after it. <laughs> like, I'm actually not a violent man. I've never felt like punching it. But you know that sometimes when people say something, you're like, oh, I hate you. I hate what you just said. That's kind of true. Do you have anybody in your life who can do that? And so if you've gone too far or if it's too late or if the spirit of conviction's hitting you today, then number five, humble yourself and repent. Humble yourself and repent. David is described in our Bibles as a great man. How? <laughs> he committed adultery, um, conspiracy, assassination. His kids were jacked up. They raped each other. They killed each other. How is David a great man? He would later be described as a man after God's own heart. How does somebody so flawed and messed up become labeled as a, God, a man after God's own heart? And I think it's because he chose to humble himself and repent every time he messed up. That's what makes David attainable, guys. I know you're not going to be perfect and I'm not going to be perfect. We need to try to live in the power of God that tries to keep us into perfection. But when you mess up, and we probably will, humble yourself enough and repent. You know, David got caught with Bathsheba like this. He thought he got away with it. He had Uriah, the husband, killed so that he could cover up the pregnancy. And then he married Bathsheba quickly so that people would not do the time and the math in their head. And they would think, oh, cool, how lovely. He redeemed a widow. Oh, we love David. Come on, he set himself up for success. Then a prophet comes in and says, um... I know what you did. Now, David was probably not alone with this prophet, Naaman, uh, uh, with this prophet Nathan when he came in. So can you imagine how humiliating it is to be sitting on the throne and someone accuses you of committing adultery and killing another man's wife, another woman's husband? 
David could have easily gone, you're a lunatic, kill him. How dare you talk about me like, me? I didn't do anything. Don't we do that sometimes when we get caught red-handed or when God convicts us? I had reason to do it. It was a really good excuse. It made sense at the time. I didn't do anything. What did David say? You're right. You're right. And he humbled himself. He wrote one of the most powerful psalms quickly after, Psalm 51. And he, he asked another musician to sing it. It must have been so humiliating to hear, I have sinned. Restore unto me my salvation. Like, David, you sure you want me to sing this? <laughs> Sounds really vulnerable, transparent. In other words, don't hide it. God's just that good. And he redeemed me. First uh, Chronicles 21, David says, I have sinned greatly by doing this. Now I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. How do we become people after God's own heart? Well, when we mess up, dysfunction a lot of times is dealt with just through repentance. I frequently tell my wife, I messed up. I took it too far. I, I, you didn't deserve me to raise my voice. You didn't deserve me to say that. Um, I, I, have to, I, I, I do this. I'll, I'll go back to my kids and I'll say, Daddy shouldn't have talked that way. Daddy made a poor decision. I've asked God to forgive me. I'm asking you to forgive me. Why? Because I want them to restore integrity. Because our God is full of integrity. And so we own it. We repent. And we humble ourselves. Pride says, well, I'm the dad. That's why. I'm in charge here. <laughs> what I say goes. And how much do we respect that kind of integrity? Or we could just humble ourselves and say, God, I've done a very foolish thing. Please help me never to do it again. And would you forgive me and restore unto me my salvation? And Jesus comes and meets and says, that's my boy. That's my son. That's my girl. Come on, let's, let's pray. If you would, close your eyes. Open up your hands because I know today's message was a bit more in our face. But I believe that God just wants to keep us on the right course because there's too many lost people watching our lives. There's too many people on the fringe of leaving Christianity because I thought there was a whole bunch of fakes and flakes. But if you're in this place and at any point God was really stepping on your toes, the Holy Spirit was convicting you like, ooh, come on, there's work to be done. Then with your hands opened up, we simply pray, God, take it from us. I've done a foolish thing. I have sinned greatly by doing fill in the blank with your own. Father, I repent. That means I'm turning around and I'm not going that way again. And Father, I thank you for the, the, the refreshing forgiveness that floods in when we do this simple act. God, I pray over every single person in this room and online who is praying this prayer, and I pray that you meet them right where they're at. Holy Spirit, thank you for fresh wind. Thank you for fresh air that you renew us again. You restore unto us the joy of our salvation. Father, we're sorry for getting off course. We're sorry for having wandering eyes. We're sorry for having wandering hearts. But Father, we, we, we say we restore the salvation. We ask for it.
I believe the Holy Spirit's going to meet you right where you're at. And I'm believing that some things are coming to an end right now. Your eyes are no longer going to that. Your ears are no longer going to that. Your heart is no longer going to be allowed to be drawn to that. You may have to do work or maybe the Holy Spirit's cutting it off right now. But I believe that right now, integrity is going to erase the dysfunction in Jesus' name. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're in this place and you're like, Pastor Drew, I'm not even really close with God. I don't, I, I, I've never done anything like this and I don't know how God could forgive me. My list is way too long, but if he would just forgive me, I'd give my life to him. If you're in this place, no one's looking around. I'm not going to call you forward, and I'm not going to embarrass you. But I don't want you to be embarrassed by God. Right now, God's offering an opportunity. Right now, it's extended to you through the blood of Jesus Christ, who is an innocent man who paid a guilty person's price. And that guilty person's price is you and me. I've asked him to forgive me and his blood covered me and erased away my sins, made it white as snow. If you're in this place and you're like, my list is way too long, I, I, if you would only just forgive me, would you just quickly raise your hand up in the air and then you can put it down. No one's looking around. Come on, just, just say into heaven, God, I, I, I make a declaration. I need to start new. And Father, I, I give my life to you. I'm sorry. I see hands. Uh, I see multiple hands. You can put them down. Thank you so much. If you're online, just write in the chat. Include me. Me too. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray a simple prayer. Because you can't save yourself. You've tried. You can't try hard enough to be good. You'll mess up again. But what you can do is enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. A personal one. That's why he died. Not so that we had religion, so that you could have a relationship. And it's going to simply go by praying this prayer after me. I'm asking everyone to raise their hand to believe this with all your heart as the whole church joins in with you and repeats along with you. Say, Jesus, I give you my life. I am a sinner. And I choose you as my Savior. I'm sorry for the stupid things I've done. I made so many mistakes. But I'm learning that through Jesus Christ, I could be forgiven of them all, and I can start over again, be a new person, a new person who lives for you. That's what I want to do. Jesus, I believe you're the son of God, and I want to live for you. I'm proud to be labeled Christian, follower of Christ. I love you, Lord. Thank you for forgiveness. My guilt is gone because of what you did on that cross. In Jesus' name I pray. And the church said...